Today on the podcast, we are talking with Dr. Jerry Hatfield. He is being interviewed by Dan Freeberg as they talk about carbon sequestration, carbon credits, and soil health. Dr. Jerry Hatfield received his PhD from Iowa State University in 1975 in the area of agricultural climatology, MS in agronomy from the University of Kentucky in 1972, and a BS in agronomy from Kansas State University in 1971, and is the retired director of the USDA ARS National Laboratory for Agriculture and the Environment in Ames, Iowa. He worked in California at the University of California, Davis from 1975 to 1983 as a biometeorologist working in a range of different crops. Joined USDA ARS in 1983 at the Plant Stress and Water Conservation Unit in Lubbock, Texas, where he stayed until his transfer to Ames to develop the research program of the National Soil Tilth Laboratory. His research focused on the interactions among the components of the soil plant atmosphere continuum and their linkage to air, water, and soil quality. His focus has been on the evaluation of farming systems and their response to water and nitrogen interactions across soils and remote sensing methods to qualify field variation. A platform for his research utilizes the genetics, times environment, times management concept as a framework to work with producers to demonstrate how they can increase their production efficiency, increase soil health, and develop resilience to weather and climate variation as the foundation for food security. His outreach efforts have included participation in the National Climate Assessment as the lead author for Agriculture for the U.S. and on the IPCC effort on greenhouse gases and climate change. Dr. Hatfield is an accomplished author with 498 referred publications and eight monographs and serves as the editor for numerous publications. And he also ranks in the top 2% of researchers in the world. His numerous awards include being inducted into the USDA ARS Hall of Fame for his research impact and the Hugh Hammond Bennett Award, along with being a fellow in the American Society of Agronomy, Crop Science Society of America, and Soil Science Society of America, and serving as president of the American Society of Agronomy in 2007. Please welcome Dr. Jerry Hatfield. Great to have you with us, Jerry. And so um, couldn't be more timely to be talking to an expert. Um, it's just so much buzz right now about carbon credits in agriculture. And so could you just give us any perspective you want to share? Just, I know, I know you probably have talked about this for decades, but uh, for everybody else, it's kind of just the latest buzz. And there's a, just a lot of attention to, to all of a sudden soil carbon or how we can sequester carbon. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at at soil carbon and sequestration and and all this, and I guess that we we kind of have <clears throat> this interesting view of of carbon. Uh, <laughs> we we have all this carbon in the atmosphere. When people say you know we're going to sequester it in the uh, in the soil, I think they magically think <laughs> it's going to go from the atmosphere into the soil and be stored there. But you have to realize that. In agriculture, uh, we take carbon dioxide and we uh, combine that with sunlight to create carbohydrates that, you know, are where plant growth comes from. And uh, when we put it into the soil, it's basically because we've transported it from the leaves down into the roots. And then we uh, take those root exudates and, and feed the microbes that that put that carbon into the soil. And so it is a very active process um, and requires that uh, we have a living plant uh, to be able to do that. Uh, 
the only way in which we pump CO2 from the atmosphere into that is with deep wells where people actually just dump and pump air down into the deep earth. But uh, in agriculture, it's really a very active process. And, and because it is an active process, uh, you know, we, uh, we have a combination of, of sequestration as well as cycling, uh, because a lot of it gets sequestered into uh, soil organic matter, uh, gets built into those aggregates, but a lot of it is, is, is really recycled very, very quickly. Uh, we have, uh, microbes that chew it up and they put it into aggregates and then they uh, they decompose and then it gets recycled. So we have to realize that in agriculture, we do build it up over time, but it's a very dynamic process uh, and has all these different implications for us in terms of improving our soil structure, improving nutrient cycling, uh, improving all these other things that, that really is where the value of carbon is coming from. When when we till soils, do we expose soil carbon to the atmosphere? Does that, do we actually, so is, is, it seems like a lot of the attention is obviously around not tilling. So, so is it, what's the tillage relationship to uh, sequestering carbon? Yeah, if you, if you look at this and, and just imagine that uh, what we have going on in the soil is we take the roots and there's an estimation that about uh, 40% of that uh, organic material is going out of the roots as, as root exudates, which is basically sugars uh, that are feeding the microbes. And of that, uh, a large percentage is going into CO2 that's in, trapped in that soil volume. Uh, so when you till, all you're doing is basically uh, releasing a lot of that CO2 that's been trapped in there and, and it goes right back to the atmosphere very quickly. The other part is that when we till, we expose a lot of that soil to the air. Uh, we, uh, the microbes really begin to, to change uh, that organic material and digest it very quickly. So we see another puff of CO2. So we actually have two mechanisms when we till. Um, but uh, that immediate release is, is really, I think, just trapped CO2. And then the longer term is the... Uh, spurring of activity of the biological community that that respires as well. Some extension person was saying that if we no-tilled every, if, if every acre in the world was switched to no-till, we could reverse climate change. That that, that single, that, you know, and obviously a huge advocate for no-till, but it was, it was almost like that this is the, this single change in practice could change climate. I mean, it's that impactful. Is that I, yeah, I'm not sure I buy <laughs> that it's that impactful. Um, and don't get me wrong. I, I do think that no-till is part of this. But if we think about no-tilling uh, corn and soybeans across Iowa, uh, we still got a large part of that growing season that in which nothing is happening. Uh, I mean, we may not be disturbing it, but we're not feeding that microbe. And, and when we when we really want to build organic material is that we've got to capitalize on uh, capturing solar radiation and CO2 and putting it in there. So we need that extended crop rotation to be able to really change that. So I don't, personally, I don't believe that no-till by itself is, is the path 
I, I think it's one component of the system, but I don't think it is the the panacea saying that if we if we kept everything else and all we did is change tillage that we'd solve climate change. I don't believe that that's really the case in that point. A lot of growers and advisors are familiar with cover crops from a nutrient perspective, you know, just having a growing plant to grab nitrate, you know, to have a less, to, to as part of a nutrient strategy, you know, in, in the upper Midwest as a way to um, just make a leaky system less leaky, right? But the, um, but what you're talking about is the additional benefit of cover crops, right, to the soil carbon. From the carbon capture perspective, uh, and we did just think about it this way, is that uh, if we don't have a growing crop out there, uh, we're not capturing sunlight. <laughs> and and if we, if we just look at Iowa, uh, from the time in which we plant that corn and soybeans in the spring until we harvest them, and then if you look from... Uh, last frost to that when that corn plant really comes up and, and then from maturity until it really freezes in the spring, is that we actually have about a third of the solar radiation that's available to grow something. Uh, so a cover crop is really thinking about it is all we're doing is using that photosynthetic process to capture a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, and you know, in doing so, we obviously affect the nutrients, we affect the water, but I think we've got to start putting it into a much larger perspective of what are we doing in terms of the dynamics of, of carbon, nitrogen, water all simultaneously. As, you, as we talk about this, people go to soil health. I mean, they, they talk about soil health and the frustration for me sometimes is soil health is, tends to be practice defined. You know, like what practices do you implement? But instead of quantity, you know, it's just like there's, you know, and I know there's different the Haney test and other tests that where they're trying to quantify um, soil health, you know, through a test. But when it comes to soil carbon, I know some of these programs are talking about, you know, soil testing as a part of that. So they're, they're obviously talking about more than organic matter. So there, there, there is a soil carbon test, right? Oh, there's a, I mean, we've had a soil carbon test. I mean, we look at organic material, we look at, uh, you can look at soil organic matter. You can look at particulate organic matter. You've got a lot of this uh, soil CO2, uh, you know, which a lot of the tests are based on is basically, I believe, a surrogate for the amount of biological activity we have in the soil because that's uh, that those are respiring organisms that generate CO2. So you got all of these pieces coming together. And I don't know... <clears throat> It, when, when we talk about soil health, I think we need to, to stand back a little bit because I think everybody says that, you know, here's a soil health test. Well, what do we want that test for? Because a lot of the components of soil health, I think, need to be much more related to soil function. Sup supplying water, <laughs> supplying nutrients, supplying support, uh, lack of compaction within that. I think we need a much more holistic view of what we want our soils to do um, and, and not get hung up and saying, what's the perfect test? I think that, that that's what confused a lot of people is that, oh, what's the one test that I need to go out and run in my field to determine if I got soil health? Well, you can look at, at how well that plant's growing. You can look at water infiltration. You can look at a number of different parameters, but they, 
just like in us, when we go to the doctor, he just doesn't say, well, I'm going to look at your left earlobe <laughs> and, and that's the indicator of health. Uh, you know, we, I mean, you look at the blood test that they run, you look at the heart rate, you look at the EK, I mean, you look at all these other things and those give us a metric of health. Uh, and I think in the same thing in soil, if we want to use that same analogy, is that it's a suite of practices uh, that give us a direction towards functionality. Uh, and, and the other thing is that <clears throat> not every soil within the field <laughs> is going to respond the same, just like every human doesn't respond the same to what we do. Uh, soils are going to respond. I mean, if we got a really sandy soil <laughs> in that field as compared to a clay soil, and we do the same thing on top of them, we're going to see a different rates of response just because of the parent material that's there. So I think we need to get that understanding out there that it's a dynamic process. It's also a process that um, it has a lot of uh, moving parts to it. Uh, you know, and, and there are certain attributes that put us down that path, but there's also going to be different rates of response as we go along as well. Yeah, I, I, I suggested one time that yield, that yield might be a surrogate for soil health. But it was really me trying to say, there are areas of the field that just are so consistently high yielding and you know and it's to me it's probably how they mineralize nutrients and you know how they hold water and all that so it's like some of the some of these really consistent high yield areas uh, some something is going on underground that is phenomenal and it's just year in year out and you know everything's working yeah i mean i i think that that you know, as we understand more and more about spatial variation within fields, you know, we are seeing parts of that field that uh, are the consistent high yielding zones of that field. I'm always intrigued by the consistent high yielding parts of that field that are the legacy <laughs> barnyards <laughs> where the where the cattle lot was. And you know, people say, well, I, I mean, that was 50 years ago <laughs> that that was there. So what changed in that and all of this? The other part of this is we have consistent low yielding parts of the field as well. And I think that we can learn a lot by probably looking at the outliers. <laughs> Why are those high yielding spots the way they are? Why are those low yielding spots the way they are? And then you got this zone that uh, the Bruno Basso and the group at, at Michigan State have come up with. You know, we got uh, low yielding stable zones, you got high yielding stable zones, and then you have unstable zones that really are dependent upon what the weather is during the growing season. Uh, some years they may be high, <laughs> some years they may be low. But I do think that one of the pieces in this, uh, in terms of, of soil health and, and these high yielding parts, is those also to, to be much more stable zones in terms of year to year. Um, they don't have those big fluctuations, whereas, and, and those low yielding parts don't have fluctuations either, but they're really non-profitable zones. These unstable zones, I mean, they could be 280 bushels one year and, and 120 the next year, and you go, what happened besides the weather? And, and you know, what what's in that buffering capacity in soils? And I, I think that we need to be back thinking about what, what triggers that soil to be able to do that? Because sometimes, you know, it's raining basically the same across the field. Uh, so, you know, how do we begin to tease that out? And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out 
just some of these dynamics. Is it all biological? And it is, or, or is it physical or is it chemical? And I'm, in reality, it's all three of those things coming together. But I, I think that if we want to move agriculture forward in terms of efficiency and profitability, that we need to start looking and, and maybe examining from, from different viewpoints of this system. And every, you know, every geography is, is we grow as a company and we get in, you know, states we ha haven't been in before. You, you know, we just always know that agronomy is local and, there, you know, there's not a one size fits all, but, but North Central Iowa, Jerry, we would, that, you know, like those, <laughs> those zones that flip back and forth a lot. I mean, we, a lot of times they're, uh, they're the potholes that, you know, they're the, so they tend to be low lying areas. They're, they're organic matter rich. They're nutrient rich because, you know, seven years out of 10, they got too much water and they, they, you know, so they, so they, you know, so nutrients have built up be just from lack of crop removal. And, and then you get a dry year and they are off the chart. They just, you know, cause they have, they have so much organic matter and so much water holding capacity that they can, they will, they will be the best part of the field in a really dry year. But, so they, they're the they're the unstable ones that flip back and forth. Yeah, well, and then we get them flip back and forth. You know, you mentioned you know the water and everything, and you know you pick it up in the spring, and then mean yeah, you struggle getting a, a, a population in that part of the field. Uh, and sometimes it gets drowned out, but if we can get that crop to to start growing, I mean yeah, it has it has nutrient cycling capacity that and water holding capacity that is right, is off the charts. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry, the, going back to the carbon credit thing, it, so will no-till will no -till kind of be a foundation for somebody to get carbon credits? I mean, yeah, I, I, I believe that no-till will be part of that process. I, I think that uh, some of the work that, that Don Rakowski has done and Morris showing that you know, it's basically the, the amount of tillage that you do, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of we're doing full width tillage, we have a lot of CO2 going in, you're doing strip till, uh, no till is really pretty small. I mean, we're going to have to have some tillage to, to magically get that seed and fertilizer into the soil. Uh, right. And so, but it's it's a matter of the width uh, of that and, and how we disturb it. You know, and, and you know, the soil, the soil actually, the biology responds very quickly to, to a lot of the different things. But I do think that that reduced tillage is is part of this overall process. Uh, you know, we see a lot of a lot of impacts of uh, when we till in the fall, <laughs> CO two being released into the atmosphere that, that basically didn't release as much back as we stored the whole summer. Uh, so we basically reset the the counter to zero at every fall when we do intensive tillage. So if we want to build it up, we got to get that piece out of the system. So I, I think that will become part of it. Uh, I think that uh, diversifying crops and, and, and getting more carbon from the atmosphere into the soil is another part of that. Uh, I mean, we could, we could say, well, if it's no-till, we just go to fallow without any tillage, and I guarantee you we won't change the carbon any. <laughs> uh, we won't release any, but we won't store any because we need that biological system as part of it. Awesome. The is there is there any scientific debate about any of this? Is the science pretty <laughs> locked down? 
as far as the as far as the carbon uh, sequestration in you know farming system there is a great deal of debate <laughs> and you know and and i don't think it's going to go away um <laughs> you know I, and but part of this is uh you know people see different responses uh we talk about and part of it's climate driven if you if you think about that the same practice that we have in uh, Iowa and transport it to um, uh, either in Southern Missouri, <laughs> you know, all we do is change the climate and, and we won't say near the response because we've had a temperature change. We have a lot more respiration going on. We have warmer soil temperatures. We have a different rainfall pattern. So we see all these different pieces. So that's, at, that's one piece that adds variation to it. Uh, and then, uh, a lot of this goes back to a, a, these zones within fields. I mean, we see different responses. And so uh, I think in a lot of our uh, monitoring and everything is we need to recognize that there are different soils instead of looking at the field average <laughs> is saying, you know, what are those different pieces and how are they responding? And, you know, and, and, and then the argument is over are you accruing carbon in the upper six inches of the soil in terms of that magic plow layer? Are you putting it down deep? Uh, I mean, that's, and then what form of uh, carbon are we measuring? Are we measuring uh, soil organic matter? Uh, I mean, a lot of this is in this particular organic matter, which gets cycled very quickly that a lot of people don't measure. Uh, so, I mean, that's, I think the scientific debate is going to continue <laughs> uh, along this path, uh, but I, I think that you know we're eventually going to settle in and say here's here's some of the the attributes <laughs> around this, and let's look at these attributes and not get hung up in saying did I use a red machine or a green machine to <laughs> to plant our crop? Uh, I think that's where a lot of this gets in, and the same thing in terms of measurements. Did you? Did you make this measurement? Did you make that measurement? Um, I often tell producers, they ask what, what the perfect soil health test is. And they say, you know, if you want to know if you got soil health, just go out and look at after your field after a two inch heavy rain. Because if you can't get two inches of rain into the soil, you don't have soil health. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got all the aggregates that are stable. You've got fin infiltration going on uh, and everything else. And they go, well, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, <laughs> an aggregation of lots of different things uh, that is there. And so it gets them to thinking about what they're really looking at out there. Same thing in terms of yield that, that you mentioned. I think that uh, one of the pieces, I think if you see soil health and why yields a pretty good surrogate for that is that when we improve our soil health, we see a lot more uh, efficiency of nutrient supply and water supply late in that growing season. So we see that plant maintain its green leaf area longer uh, in the grain filling period, both for corn and beans, even for wheat, as we begin to look at this. So I think there are things that we could get producers interested in just looking at to say, you know, what are some of the indications going on that you're making a change in your system? Do you see carbon credits as potentially a, a, a way to help pay the, you know, make the economics even for switching to cover crops and less tillage? I, if we can get the value of carbon credits up enough, <laughs> I mean, you, you look at this, I mean, uh, I was just looking at some data the other day that we're 
you know, really good systems, maybe eight tenths, six, five, half to eight tenths of a ton uh, of this, you know, and we're only offering $15 a ton. I mean, that's $12 cost you, cost you 30 to put in a cover crop. So you're still on the negative side uh, on that, even though you, you can get the value over time. I think we've got to uh, get back to producers and, and again, back to your zoning question of saying, <laughs> How, how do you really begin to look at, at profitability uh, across the field and saying, how, how do I look at increasing profitability? Uh, maybe in those, uh, those poor parts of the field is that, you know, reducing fertilizer applications because you're not getting return on them, doing other things that uh, you could trade that input of fertilizers for, for the cover crop to be able to improve those. <clears throat> I think we need a different strategy about how we really go about implementing conservation practices across the field and, and uh, accounting for the value of them uh, and the potential impact uh, short-term and long-term. And I think that there, therein lies some of the, uh, the imagination <laughs> that I think we ought to be using relative to farming systems. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to look at our conservation practices as kind of a generic sort of sweet. We'll just lay these on the field out there. But in reality, I think we need to be much more structured and thinking about how they're going to work uh, and how they could be implemented in a much more, uh, much more of a dynamic way, but also a way in which I think they would have much more of a lasting impact. And he's just really skeptical on the whole carbon sequestration. And as a farmer, you know, what does he have to do and is it going to benefit him? I mean, if you if you look at carbon from a benefit perspective, and I don't think we've talked enough about the benefits of carbon. We, we talk about carbon relative to carbon markets. We talk about sequestration. But the value of putting carbon back into the soil, uh, I often use this analogy that if you get into carbon for the carbon market perspective, it's like new running board money for your pickup. Uh, but if you get into improving carbon for the agronomic and efficiency piece, it's new pickup money. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the orders of magnitude that we're talking about because we see that improvement in, in yield stability. Uh, we take those low yielding parts of the field out. I don't think we've explained to producers the real value of carbon uh, and, and why that's so critical as, as part of the field in terms of nutrient cycling, water, uh, infiltration and storage and, and uh, even overall vigor uh, of the crop. And I think when we put those metrics around it and producers begin to see that, oh, these real changes are out there. But, you know, often we just sell it from the, the standpoint of carbon sequestration and it's going to do good for the climate, uh, and which it does. But for the producer, they don't, they don't care a whole lot about that. And so when we put it into that perspective of what it means for them, uh, then I think it really becomes an important part of their decision process. And I think it's an, it's a, it's an educational effort uh, as well. Absolutely. I think that the value just hasn't been seen or believed by them yet to understand that there's so much talk about carbon credits that, that they're questioning, like, is this for real? What do I need to do? You know, it's just another payment back to the grower. How, you know, how do, what do they have to do to get it? And what do they, they have to do to achieve it? 
Well, and I, I think that a lot of this in terms of achieving it is that we need to realize that there are a, a suite of practices. <laughs> it, it just don't say, well, as we, we've talked about, that the only way you can get there is, is no-till. Uh, that's, that's one component. Uh, reduced tillage is one component of the system. Uh, you know, that crop diversity and, and putting more crop longer through the growing season in there. Uh, even adding uh, bio-based uh, fertilizers. <laughs> manures, compost, things like this do a, do a major impact on this because ultimately what we're talking about is allowing the biological system within the soil to, to do its thing in terms of capturing carbon and putting it into soil aggregates, putting it into organic matter, all those other things that go on. And it really becomes a, a a very fascinating puzzle that we're trying to put together. But there, to me, there is no uh, one thing that, that is the magic solution. This is a very complex problem that, that we need to look at. And as we've talked about, it's not something that you can say even across a given field, across a given 40 acre field, that you're going to see the same result if you did the same thing. Uh, and so I think we need to to think a lot more judiciously about how we go about achieving our goals and looking at how practices and pieces and responses fit together. Uh, and I think that's part of that whole maturity of, of really evaluating our system and figuring out where we wanna go and how we wanna get there. The, so just to change, Jerry, in order to change, to change uh, soil carbon, what's a realistic time frame? Because this is, this is not a, I mean, this is, it, this is a, this is a long, long-term in, in the, you know, in the relative, it, it's not something that changes very fast, right? Yeah, well, we actually see changes in, in, carbon within one growing season. <laughs> now, measurement-wise, it gets a little difficult to pick that up, but we, we can see it because of, of changes in color. We can see changes in aggregates near the surface. Uh, you know, those are the kind of the unstable parts of this. Uh, the stable parts are really much more in that two to five year time frame. We really want to see depth changes with depth, and we're talking about plus 10. Uh, and I think we've got to realize this, but, you know, things occur quickly, uh, you know, and, and I was looking at some of the uh, dynamics on uh, root exudates relative to microbial activity. And, and those often occur within minutes <laughs> of, of changing this. So, uh, you know, you look at all this and I think we've got to realize that that we're dealing in a, in a very uh a set of different time constants <laughs> all the way across uh, our, our platform. And, and what, it goes back to the, the thing on soil health. What, what parameters really changing within that? Because we know some parameters are gonna change a lot more quickly than others. Uh, you know, we see aggregate changes within a growing season. They're not very stable, <laughs> but they are changing. Uh, so it's a matter of what's that time constant to get it to be a much more of a stable aggregate. 
Yeah. So for a grower was to start implementing some of these, there's nothing set in stone right now either of what management practices they should follow. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I think you, when you, when we go back and we talk about why there's so much controversy <laughs> within the science community is that there's, there's not a common set of, of practices and there's, uh, and a lot of people in, in this, uh, this is one of my frustrations, really have not accounted for the fact of all the weather variation that occurred during their experiment. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the rainfall patterns that we talked about with uh, the heavier soils is that we get these wet springs uh, and then we get dry summers. Uh, I mean, that really influences the response. Sometimes we get dry springs, rarely, but you know we get wet summers even more rare. Uh, you know, and so I think that part of this is we've got to figure out how to start normalizing <laughs> uh, a lot of the different uh, characteristics that are out there. And even in terms of, uh, of cover crops, I mean, we, we talk about this. So, so if you run a monoculture cover crop of rye, you know, how, how large was that rye crop? You know, people say, well, I planted a, a, a rye cover crop. Well, was it 3,000 pounds of, of biomass, or was it 500 pounds? Uh, you know, just because you had a cover crop doesn't mean you all had the same efficacy. And if you've got uh, a cover crop cocktail with a with a, a, a small grain and a legume and a brassica mixture, well, what's what was the real biomass that was generated out of that? And so I think there needs to be a lot of normalization of instead of just saying we did this, what was the, the real efficacy? Just going back to, to Dan's comment in terms of, of yield, we need to look at the productivity of our cover crop system uh, over time. And we have tools to be able to do that. Uh, and I, th I think that starts putting us on much more of an equal footing of saying, why do we see these responses across different places? Well, could be because we had different levels of input. <laughs> across that we didn't even characterize. So overall, when it comes to carbon sequestration, does it pay for the farmer and should they start doing it today? I think it does. I, I think it pays in lots of different ways. Uh, it uh, We start this path towards carbon sequestration. Uh, we change our infiltration rates. Let's just start about what, what are we really trying to do in our agriculture across the Midwest? is that we wanna take as much precipitation and put it back through that crop to create yield. And when we've got a soil that's uh, pretty fragile and, and we have low infiltration rates of, of less than a half inch per hour, uh, you know, if we can just improve the infiltration rate up to two inches per hour, then we get a lot more rain into that system. Uh, one, if I can get rain into the soil, I can store it. But if I can't get it into the soil, it's just runoff. And, and so I think we start with that, realizing that our whole goal in agriculture is to do two things. One is to capture sunlight, and one is to put as much water through that plant as possible. Uh, and if we get our soil set up so that we're doing those things, it's going to pay dividends to us. So let's think about that dynamic. And then ultimately, you'll end up and saying, well, I'll recycle more nutrients. I'll do all these other things that kind of buffer against the weather variation that's going on out there. So that's that's a path that I think we need to be explaining to producers of what carbon really is doing 
uh, at various steps along the way. Not the check in the mail. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it goes back, and I, 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 I believe that if if we really want soils to to be that carbon sequestering part, is that we need to be explaining to agriculture and producers this whole dynamic of carbon and how it's going to benefit them uh, in ways that they really haven't thought about very much. Thanks for listening to the Premier Podcast, where everything agronomic is economic. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so we can continue to provide the best precision ag and analytic results for you. And to learn more about Premier Crop, visit our blog at premiercrop.com.